Alrighty, welcome back to Open Sources Guelph. You're on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I am Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico, and joining me is... Uh, Scotty Hertz, the weathered uh, undergrad, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> although well-rested for our time off, I have my uh, um, beekeeper mask on, and you know, just in case something gets into the bunker when I'm not looking, but uh, it should be okay. I can tell you're well-rested. That uh, that blurb at the beginning there was easily two weeks of workshopping. Oh, definitely. <laughs> several, several Zoom meetings, and I, I don't know how many flowcharts at time. <laughs> it was time well spent, that's for oh, sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. You call me Mellow Yellow, man. <laughs> All right. Now, if we've got that out of our system, so open source, this is CFRU's Political and Current Affairs Discussion Show, and you can find us here every Thursday at 5 p.m., as we talk about the latest news items in Guelph, Ontario, Canada, and around the world, and we sometimes interview local newsmakers and politicians, which this week will be the new Liberal MPP for Don Valley East, Dr. Adil Shamji. He is going to talk about his first couple of weeks in the legislature and how his experience as an emergency room doctor is influencing his new political gig. So stay tuned for that at the back half of the show. Before that... We are going to talk about a few news items from the last week, including Trump, who's, well, we've been enjoying a nice vacation. He's had a pretty bad couple of weeks, legal-wise speaking. And uh, so is this finally the untimely end of Trump, uh, at least politically speaking? Uh, We don't wish him any specific harm. But first, uh, it is the most wonderful week of the year, AMO Conference Week, Um, the Association of Municipalities of Ontario. Uh, I shouldn't have to explain that if it is the most wonderful week of the year, but uh, I know not everyone pays such strict attention to municipal politics, but they should because uh, Doug Ford and many of his ministers were there to talk to uh, leaders from the 444 participating municipalities in AMO, pretty much every city in Ontario, city, town, village in Ontario, except for uh, Toronto. But uh, Doug Ford, pretty upbeat opening up the conference on Monday, even making a few jokes at his own expense. Uh, You may have seen the famous, now famous viral bee attack on Doug Ford. Over and over. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you can, you can hate Doug Ford's politics all you want, but I mean, he, he, he handled that like a pro that, that could have, that could have been so much worse for him. (laughs) Well, and he's riding it. I mean, it made CNN to a supercut, which included, a cameo by Mayor Cam Guthrie. I don't know if you saw it yet. Adam, yeah, but, uh, that was yeah. that was some serious shade. Yeah, I don't. I'm not but, sure people but, really appreciate the dark overtones of that. Of you know, <laughs> get Cam putting on a bee costume. And, no, but wasn't it? Was it a previous like Halloween costume, like file photo? That was the impression I got. I maybe, think it was when Pollinator Garden, right? I think it was when Guelph became a bee city. He. Oh like yeah, that, yeah. So it, it, it was like a file photo. You're right, but I mean, still, it, that's that's a lot of shade. To, to throw it at Ford for yeah. <laughs> but then I guess he's taking it in stride too but of course Ford is loving it because it distracts from everything else that's going on that's right um all I caught of the ammo and I know you've been watching it closer than I have uh is is him doing the shtick with the plastic bee so it's like that's that's what's in most people's minds mm-hmm. knowing that there's all of this other stuff going around on with the province including and sticking with municipal because i'm not sure whether it came up at the conference adam i thought this was interesting that it, it's not the super mayor what was it oh the strong, strong mayor building homes act yep yep 
that's not even just the, the increase in mayoral powers. It's like, we're going to give the mayors these powers so they can be involved with homes. Uh, I don't know if this is running in tandem to the election coming up, hoping that there's a bunch of conservative mayors going to get elected in places or the ones that lean conservative anyway, or friends with mm. the industry or business. But the whole thing about every time he talks about homes, it's increasing supply. Ford is like increasing supply. And I don't know if this magic wand that they're going to give the big city mayors. So far, it's just Toronto and Ottawa, but I take mm -hmm. it it's going to spread. Yeah. Somebody else will say, what about me? What about me? Uh, the whole fallacy of the increased supply thing is just like, you know, he, he will ride that. And, but then again, it's it's sort of a form of downloading too, right? If the housing doesn't get built, it'll be like, well... You know, he has the power. John Troy has the power. Why hasn't he done it, right? That's what this is all about, in my view. I don't know. I don't think that's incorrect. I think that, and, and um, Steve Clark, the municipal affairs and housing minister, in his speech on Tuesday, he said something. This isn't an, ex an exact quote, but he more or less said, like, we know that the solution to the housing crisis is increasing supply. And it's like, well, that's not the solution to the housing crisis because the root of the crisis is that people can't afford to live <laughs> like buy places or even rent places in even you know municipalities as far out from the gta like in guelph kitchener waterloo london even now um mm -hmm. the, the problem Creeping is being ever further away from gta yeah, I mean, it would be incorrect to say that supply isn't a problem, but it would also be incorrect to say supply is the problem. Supply is definitely part of the problem. I mean, it's definitely part of it. It's long been a problem here in Guelph where our vacancy rate is is like shockingly low, like 1% or less um, mm -hmm. low. And I mean, that a lot of that has to do with the University of Guelph and we're seeing, you know, advanced pressures on that with higher than um, higher than ever record high student enrollment. Um so, I mean, th those pressures are real. Supply pressures are real. But um, unless government is going to be building homes and unless there's money from the government to build homes, uh, it's all going to be like market driven, market priced. And, you know, if you can't get into the market now, you're not going to get into the market um, uh, you know, a million and a half homes from now. And there was this interesting um, study from the University of Ottawa's Smart Prosperity Institute, which, you know, sounds a little dicey given the name, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's out of the University of Ottawa. So it has an air of mystery to it. Huh? Yeah, it's uh, it, it does sound like a like a like a like a beat villain company. Yeah, I was going to say like a multi-level marketing scheme, but yeah. um but, you know, they, they've noted we're already 500,000 homes behind and we need another million homes um, in the next. Well, I mean, it's almost the end of 2022, uh, well, more than halfway through 2022. So essentially in eight years, we're getting a million more homes. Plus, we're half a million homes behind. It just seems kind of ludicrous to say by 2031 that we're going to build a million and a half homes. And the solution is strong mayor powers, which aren't even like directed at just housing. It's mm -hmm. matters of provincial priority. And I hope people heard the air quotes I put around that matters of provincial priority. And the Globe and Mail, hardly a you know tree hugging liberal institute, pointed at this in an in, uh, in the editorial from their editorial board, saying like you know is it any more clear that Doug Ford is seeing Ontario's mayors as basically appendages of the government of Ontario that, yep. you know, you, you do what we say. And then what happens when cities are like, well, we're not going to do what you say. And we're seeing a lot of that uh, as cities, Guelph included, sort of pushing back against the, 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 
the uh, population increase numbers that um, are, are being laid out. And that's only going to get louder um, as, as we sort of uh, go forward into the 2020s. Yeah. And being, I don't know if people realize that it's laid out by the province, like the city, mm-hmm. the city mm-hmm. doesn't decide the capacities. It's that places to grow, or maybe that name has changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it has. I think the, the intent is there anyway, that this is a place where they're just, you know, need to increase supplies. They keep saying, but it hasn't, you know, I think we've talked about this before. And I've said this, that the place is going around the corner from me. The only two that are listed are at a million dollars. Mm-hmm. And no one I know can afford that, mm-hmm. but it, yeah. And it, the powers do extend. I think he wants to give certain mayors, the powers that were denied his brother when he was the mayor of Toronto. Yeah. Yep. It's like, I wish I could hire and fire staff. I wish I could, you know, decide who is on committees and boards and commissions and all that stuff, which I believe is part of this as well. Right. So you can say, I'll appoint my friends and these people, and then they'll do my bidding. And well, then what does the count? What does the council do then? Mm-hmm. If it's one member, one vote as it's supposed to be that, but you've got this uh, army of people that, and regardless of what the mayor's sway is, whether they're conservative or social Democrat or whatever, I would say that the only way you're going to get progress in housing is if you do get people that lean, let's say lean left, but not necessarily that see, you know, like a David Crombie type, let's go back mm. to the days when they were building <laughs> housing for people in cities, mm-hmm. which is what, and when I say housing, it's not how would people picture houses. It's not housing. It's buildings, right? It's apartments. It's you mm-hmm. name it. multiplexes, mm-hmm. triplexes. That's what's required. Well, we put in a, a lot into the housing and all that here, but we should probably move on to something like, I don't know, the healthcare situation in the province, which made uh, Sylvia Jones and a bunch of the other ones disappear mm-hmm. for a period until they were sort of, I don't know, I wouldn't say browbeaten, but <laughs> I, I, that one talk with Sylvia Jones seemed to be a bit of a pounce and uh, you could see the handlers or somebody in the background going, Oh my God, is she talk? Why is she talking to the media? We got to have to get her out of there. Um, <laughs> but yeah. she handled it in that way that they handle it. You know, the whole, well, you know, you'll continue to be able to use your OHEP card, but we're looking at all of the options for healthcare because there's a problem and there's a crisis, <clears throat> which they created uh, or their people did anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they say your OHIP card will still be recognized, that means your OHIP card. That doesn't mean that somebody with the bucks who's bought that $5 million house behind, beside you that has the money can't go and get private care. They always mm-hmm. point to things that were grandfathered in, as we used to say, the Shouldice Hernia Clinic and even the Homewood in town here is subject to unique... Uh, parameters because they existed before healthcare, mm-hmm. but that's that's no way to base your plan for the future. And of course, I'm sure Adam, you saw the story about the uh, paying contract uh, nurses, which hit this week, mm-hmm. and that that's huge as well. So they're paying hospitals are paying double to have staff. Uh, now the staff doesn't get all of that money; an agency gets some of it. But I mean, it's understandable. And I've seen some of the doctors speak on it too. You know, you can't really blame a nurse who's been worked ragged to say, okay, I'm going to join an agency. I'll make more money and I can decide my hours. Mm -hmm. You'd say to yourself, why aren't the hospitals and the government steering that in that you have workers in the hospitals that are better treated and that they don't need to default to that, the other model, which isn't as cost-effective, but of Mm -hmm. course, who is involved with that type of model? As I keep saying over and over and over, the friends. Mm-hmm. The friends make money when you privatize systems. 
Yeah, and sorry, I got but, a little carried away there. No, 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 I, I don't mind. It's a nerve, and it's a raw nerve. I've, so. I've been only stuck with my own voice in my head for the last uh, two weeks, so it's oh. fine. Um, <laughs> uh, I, we, we're we're going to get into a lot of this with Doctor Shamji, obviously. Um, but the, the other part of this is, um, I do wonder if we appreciate just how much privatization we do have in healthcare in Ontario already, like Life Labs, which is a private company. Mm-hmm. Um, Guelph Medical Dink, who's on the board here. of directors, will tell you yeah. a lot. Yeah, and you know, we have private long-term care facilities. So it's it's not just a matter of, ooh, you know, they have a plan to privatize things. It's like, well, stuff's been privatized. It's been privatized for a while. The question is, um, and I saw a lot of the doctors you mentioned, you know, pointing this out too. It's like, well, wh- where are the doctors for a private system going to come from? They're going to become from the system we have now. And if you're a doctor or a nurse or, or someone with a, like a scientific specialty that, you know, is, is can be used and you're being worked to the nub and someone comes along and says, hey, do you want to work like a solid, you know, 440 with four weeks of vacation and, you know, benefits and a foosball table in the staff lounge? Like, what are you going to say? Like, am I going to continue to be worked to the nub or am I going to, you know, actually be treated like a human being and, and get a, get a career with some benefits. Um, I, I would say what was just kind of especially disturbing is that they keep they, when Sylvia Jones says things like all options are on the table and, and everyone's like, do you mean like more privatized healthcare? And then they don't dismiss it, you know, and then that's leading in again, we'll get into this with Dr. Shamji too um, about, you know, the, what's in the ministerial letters, what's in the, um, you know, sort of the marching orders that, you know, all the ministers have been given, including uh, Sylvia Jones. Does she know something? Does she know something about a project that the government's working on that maybe we should all know? I don't know, but it's there in the ether now. And we're not talking about how to fix the problems with healthcare as they exist right now. We're talking about, you know, trying to, you know, from the sounds of it, talk to the government out of making things worse. Yeah, and we're probably running low on time and I'm sure we'll get to it, but the education portfolio will be another one to watch in the next couple of weeks because that mm. is going to get super hot, super fast. It's already yes. on it's already on mid-simmer, I guess. It's already on gas five. So uh well, QP has a meeting next week where they're gonna, you know, talk about what the plan is. And yeah. and they said, like, let's be clear, this isn't a strike vote, but strike is certainly not off the table. And you know, for <laughs> for a lot of people, um, it was 2019. It was the fall of 2019 mm-hmm. that uh, teachers, you know, were last negotiating. It was three years ago. I mean, it feels like times has flown by, but it was three years ago. And what happened in that situation? Uh, well, the government, you know, kept, you know, waiting it out, waiting it out, denying, you know, pulling out the the, the negotiations, um, refusing to uh, listen to the teachers' demands. And what did they do? They folded. And then the pandemic hit. And you know who's in charge of education right now? Same guy. So it's going to be a mess. It's going to be a mess for months. And then, you know, maybe at some point he'll give up again. Well, he he keeps doing this whole, well, we're at eight tables. It's like, yeah, that's what you do. That's how it's not you you personally, dude. It's like eight sets of negotiations. (laughs) I'm sure there's some overlap, right? But it's like, he's making it sound like it's me versus the world. Also keeps implying that they're, automatically go out on strike which is mm-hmm. not true mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so the dance has begun and it's gonna well it's, the uh, the other thing i say if he doesn't like the, <laughs> if he doesn't like the number of tables are there he could always cut out the catholic board and cut it in half 
Um, but yeah. that's a that's a conversation. Really good point. That's a conversation yeah. another time. Um, also having a Definitely bad time of <laughs> bad time of it <laughs> lately is our old friend Donald J. Trump. Uh, he is just trying to you know go about his life and play golf all day and start Twitter ripoffs and talk about maybe running for president again in two years and the FBI just won't leave him in peace. Uh, he was just trying to hoard some precious top secret documents in the basement of his Florida resort. And the FBI went barging in to take them back with a duly signed federal search warrant. But yeah, it was uh, not a good couple of weeks for Donald Trump. No, and there's, and there's nothing more ironic than the, that the gang saying, oh, they should defund the FBI. Talk oh about my an goodness. ironic crossover, right? It's like, defund the police. It's like, what? What is going on here? And it is, it's, it's we're back in that space. Um, and part of the irony, too, is you know people that Trump appointed just doing their jobs mm-hmm. are the people that are effectively going to take him down, maybe? And, of course, Trump is like, well, what about Hunter Biden's laptop? <laughs> Like the talking points haven't changed at all. What about Hillary's emails? I'm like, I feel like I'm in a rerun here, right? Yeah. Left Democrats and witch hunt and he capitalizes everything. But of course, the the, the dark side of it is, you know, the, the fact that there was a like a mini January 6th attack on an FBI building right away. Mm-hmm. Driven mm-hmm. by, it would seem, things like, as you mentioned, Truth Social mm-hmm. and uh, Telegram. Yeah, and Telegram, the guy posted something like, if we don't hear from me, they got me, they meaning the FBI. So, yeah. Apparently, he was armed with a gun and a nail gun, which was an interesting choice of weaponry, but regardless, it got him taken out. From what I understand, the whole nail gun thing is because there was some chatter that nail guns can penetrate bulletproof glass, although that's not entirely true. That's the point of the nail gun. Yeah, really sharp points do uh, do a number on safety glass. I don't know about yeah. glass, but not yeah. to get into the science of glass, but yeah, it's something <laughs> you hit any glass really hard with a small, sharp object. Anyway, um, yeah, where, where, where do we go from there? I'm sure Trump knows nothing about this, uh, <laughs> probably. But yeah, so it's um, also that was interesting, too, because I saw one of, uh, a little clip of um, Russian state TV talking about, you know, trying to talk about what was going on. It's like, well, you know. Uh, they're worried about the secrets getting to us. We already know what's in there. I mean, talk about super troll, right? It's like, mm. we already know what's in the boxes. So you say to yourself, did Trump tell you? Or is this usual disinformation that you're just saying that you know what's in the banker boxes? It's like, oh, my God. But anyway. Well, you said Trump is up to his old tricks, and he absolutely has been. You know, yeah. there was that, um, I think it was New York Times story about how he you know, somebody called Merrick Garland or the Department of Justice on Trump's behalf and said, like, hey, if there's anything I can do to turn down the heat, let me know, which is, you know, ostensibly a, a mob tactic, like, you know, nice, nice shop you have here. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, the other thing uh, along with that, too, was, um, yeah, like a, a lot of these people on these right-wing sort of social media channels. That guy was one, the guy who attacked the the field office in Cincinnati. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you mentioned him posting. Apparently he was posting to Telegram or Truth or whatever it was as the police were chasing him because it, that, that his, last, his last social media post was like cut off because he was like tweeting as he was in a police chase, which is um, 
you know, probably the least of his concern, texting and driving. Mm-hmm. But, um, you Is know, the there text- was <laughs> there was somebody, too, who um, he, he's already been convicted for January 6th stuff. But he posted like, sleep well, everybody. Tomorrow it's war. And it's like, dude, you really don't think the prosecutor at your sentencing hearing isn't going to like put this on a plasma screen in front of the judge and go, hey, look what he's doing while he's waiting to be sentenced for this other insurrection he helped to <laughs> participate in yeah it, it's it's just you know it's kind of crazy and i almost fainted i like i didn't think she could shock me but i almost fainted when i saw marjorie taylor green uh tweeted to fund the fbi it's like oh yeah i was like what <laughs> who who is this because i sometimes see tweets like that but it does definitely definitely doesn't come from that side of the of the, of the wall right but <laughs> It's, it's just crazy. It's like they become the thing they've hated. But yeah, um, and, and yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was, I was, you go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just going to say uh, in, in terms of a game with Trump's excuses that, you know, FBI planted the evidence. What was the other one? He had to say uh, Obama's middle name. Barack yeah. Hussein Obama kept 33 million documents. Yeah. Much of it classified. Again, nothing to it. It's just lies it's just yeah. saying these things, right? I mean, and it also prompted like the National Archivist to like release a press statement that says, no, Barack Obama does not have 33 classified documents. We control like one set of non-classified material. That's that is, yes. you know, his Chicago presidential library. And we have all the top secret stuff in, you know, the archive. And I think that's like been kind of the really scary thing about this is like the, the, the like the stuff that he had. And I was listening to uh ben rhodes talk about this ben rhodes who you know worked in um sort of foreign affairs and the obama white house and if it's this label top secret sci which uh now that i i'm talking about i can't remember what it stands for um but at top secret sci it is more often than not intelligence that has to do with like like sort of counterterrorism and in these like intelligence operations it has nothing to do with like regular um diplomatic stuff um this is like the most sensitive material and he had boxes Mm. of it and you have to ask yourself like what what was he doing why did he have this and then i i heard an interview with lawrence tribe the you know luminary uh legal scholar say like and he reminded me in the interview is like you know they have busted spies at mar-a-lago um Mm. (laughs) you know you think Actually, I don't think there was a locked door. I think it was behind an unlocked door because there was some conversation about putting a new lock on it on the door. But you know, here in the basement, in a like some storage room behind an unlocked door, are like some of the most sensitive secrets in America. And you have spies wandering around this resort because they know that Donald Trump stays there and he's a leaky faucet and once like planned a counterattack on Syria at the dinner buffet. Um, you, you know, if you're a spy, like, are you going to put someone in the you know, and Donald Trump's the president. Are you going to put them, try and get them into the Pentagon or the State Department? Are you going to just have them pay the at Mar-a-Lago? Yeah, yeah pay like the two hundred fifty membership, two hundred fifty thousand dollars membership fee at Mar-a-Lago, and just you know let them sidle yeah. up the bush at the breakfast buffet. You need you know, like a it's no brain Chapman type. He yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. <laughs> but that's and sort of uh, you know, r- related to this is the fact mm. that as as much as the of the garbage that comes out, Trump is one of his strengths. Mm. is being able to control the message, even if it is misinformation, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is re- kind of reflected in the, I suppose you've talked about a little bit, the um, Cheney going down on like getting absolutely slaughtered in the, in the Wyoming primary this week. Yeah, that was a blowout. 
Trump uh, supported candidates. No, sorry, not Trump supported candidates. People that support the 10 that supported Trump's impeachment, including Cheney, eight of them are now toast. They mm-hmm. won't be in the running in the midterms or ever, at least not for the foreseeable. I'm not sure who the two uh, outliers are at this point, but that's, I mean, that's impressive that you're still, you still are able to control this message and get enemies taken out. That's how strong uh, the support is still. And I don't think people should underestimate that. I did think it was interesting that Cheney kind of implied that she might actually run for the top job. That could be an interesting race or a tragic one. I don't know, but it, it will be, it'll be something to watch for sure. Cause I think I, she'd do really well. She was trying to stir up Democrat support in Wyoming, yeah. which is really, really odd. And old man Cheney surfaced too, uh, <laughs> which was like, huh. yeah, <laughs> I, mean, it was, I don't know what else to say with Cheney. It's just, uh, my daughter. Uh. I mean, it's, uh, it's like, pretty- these aren't good, you know, this, Cheney supported Trump. What was it? 92 or 94% of the time. There was just yeah. certain things like, I don't know, like January the 6th that she thought should be addressed. And for that, she paid bigly as Trump would say. Yeah. I I'm sure she will emerge as a contender at, if there is a, a kind of any kind of open primary for the Republicans, I, I, I think she would be a spoiler in that. And, and I, I heard Mark Leibowitz talk about this, that, you know, she was probably the smartest person on that stage. Um, However, that that wouldn't be enough to sort of get her enough delegates to have a shot at winning the nomination. And the only thing I in so much as like we love to watch, you know, Trump and that turkey based or, you know, it's there, there is a serious question about like how how many people would, you know, abandon him seeing Liz Cheney sort of roast him on a spit in front of a national audience. It, that, that, that's in a direct debate. I mean, that's the biggest thing now is just, there are so many people who are so it, it, it's, it, it is a complete indoctrination despite all of yep. this. Um, you know, you can talk all you want about Hillary Clinton and her, her private servers. Uh, you can talk yes. all you want about Hunter Biden. Um, but, you know, he had a you know eleven boxes of above top secret material just lying around, and I thought Trump supporters hated that stuff. I thought they hated people who were playing fast and loose with like sensitive um, U.S. intelligence materials. Um, you know, and and pe- you know, it, it may not be comfortable, but people are talking their way around that. And if they could talk their way around this, um, I I'm, I am not sure at this point what talks them out of supporting um, Donald Trump. It's, it's yeah, because I mean, also hates people who take the fifth, which he did 40, 40, yeah, 40 yeah. times at the business practice investigation. I think people were sort of confusing the two things that are going on. That's actually a separate thing. Yeah. But it does speak to the general, like, I guess Eric took the fifth a bunch of times too. But again, you know, they go back to the file footage, like, only mobsters take the fifth. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't trust people to take the fifth amendment and then you do it. And now he's like, oh, now I understand. You know, he took the fifth to questions like, what are your golf clubs worth? Yeah. I refuse to testify. I mean, I'd love to, I, I don't know why it was closed. Cause you know, a lot of times these things are open, but well, it's probably a, get it's painful a, after about the 300th. I, you know, I refuse to testify. Yeah. I'd be like Sideshow Bob yeah. stepping on he the said race, The only thing but... he got right was his name. Yeah. And Which everything else was no, no, no. Can't say I'm surprised, but I can say <laughs> that it's time for a break. Oh, uh, good. <laughs> you are listening to Open Sources Guelph. 
on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. And that was the honey horn sound of Al Hurt. Probably familiar to you if you watched uh, TV anytime from the 1960s on. That was the theme from the show, The Green Hornet, with hints of Flight of the Bumblebee by Rimsky Korsakov in there for our classical leaning listeners. I would also point out it was used in Kill Bill Volume 1. Ah, yes. I think that was where it became popular again to a whole new audience. Mm-hmm like Stranger Things did with Kate Bush, et cetera. So. <laughs> and we lean hard into the 60s instrumentals here on this show. So, you know, it's right on point. It's right there. And also when people are swallowing bees, wasps, uh, bald-headed hornets, or whatever they're swallowing, uh, you know, you need appropriate soundtracks for these things. That's right. Um, speaking of appropriate soundtracks, uh, you know, we talked about healthcare earlier. So we got a doctor. Before we went on break, we interviewed a nurse. Now we're interviewing a doctor. The trick is that this doctor is also now a liberal member of provincial parliament. He is uh, representing Don Valley East. His name is Dr. Ajil Shamji. And uh, he uh, you know, is at home currently because he's recovering from COVID. He announced earlier this week that he had the... He had caught the vid and uh, he is recovering. But uh, so you may notice him sort of clear his throat a lot in the interview, but otherwise he's fairly upbeat and he was very interested to talk about healthcare concerns. He knows a lot about them. He worked in an emergency room. He worked as the uh, health director for 11 different homeless shelters in Toronto. So this guy knows his stuff when it comes to the healthcare industry. And he is going to share some of that stuff with us here on Open Sources uh, starting right now okay so dr adil shamji thank you so much for joining me today oh the pleasure is entirely mine thanks for having me adam uh i did want to start off by noting uh a couple of days ago you posted on twitter that uh, you had tested positive for covid so how are you feeling you you seem to be in good health good spirits so yeah thanks very much for asking uh, i'm feeling great i had truthfully you know only very minor symptoms out of you know out of my duty to the public i, I felt it was important to disclose that uh, COVID is still out there, um, and uh, I am taking the same precautions I'm recommending to everybody else. So, but thank you for for asking. I'm feeling great. Good, good. We're glad to hear it. So, let's start off with um, for people who may not know, you uh, have a background as a uh, working in the ER, working in an emergency room. You've also, uh, you know, been a healthcare provider for people who are experiencing homelessness. So, I mean, you. Are, you're working in Queen's Park now, but I'm sure you still have friends and colleagues who are in healthcare still. So, I mean, what are they what are they telling you about the current situation in in the hospitals and in community health clinics? Yeah, it's a it's a really difficult time to be a patient in Ontario's healthcare system right now. And that's what I'm hearing, not just from, 
you know, my friends and colleagues who are um, healthcare workers in emergency departments, so nurses, emergency doctors, <clears throat> but we're hearing that from the family doctors as well, certainly hearing it from patients also. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's evident that uh, wait times are, are longer than they ever have been before. It's more difficult to get seen by a physician than it ever has been before. And of course, <clears throat> there has been throughout the pandemic, a growing backlog of diagnostic and surgical services. And that has continued to snowball and accumulate. We're at over 22 million services right now. And, and that is having knock-on effects across the healthcare system as well. Things that could have been dealt with that, uh, you know, while they were minor issues, or for example, cancers that could have been detected when they were just, you know, local and in, and in a single place, are now presenting in more acute manners at more advanced stages and demanding more healthcare resources and making it more difficult for patients to have a complete recovery. And so we're seeing all of these things happen. And then uh, to make matters worse, at a time that typically is not very, it tends to be <clears throat> less busy for our healthcare system. Right. Uh, and, and that just makes everything that much more difficult. Again, at a time when we need to be preparing for the usual historic busy time, which is in the fall, when children go back to school, when influenza and other respiratory illnesses become active and people begin to head indoors because of the cold. And so that's why it's a worrying scenario, worrying time for so many of us in, in, you know, in the know in healthcare. You, I, just listening to you talk there, I was thinking we saw last week, according to Public Health Ontario, we saw the most number of, of deaths from COVID-19 in the seventh wave. And uh, I was reading um, the science table doctor saying, well, that, that's essentially like a lagging indicator. It's, the, you know, you see the most deaths sort of at the end of the wave instead of at the beginning of mid wave. Can we say the same thing about what's happening in healthcare now that, you know, the jam DRs, um, people experiencing like more severe illnesses, more severe symptoms uh, across a myriad of different um, health issues. I mean, is, is what's happening in, in ERs like a lagging indicator of a, frankly, a sick healthcare system? It's a really astute observation. And, and quite frankly, it's, it's an observation that we actually see, you know, when we consider disasters of different kinds of varieties, typically in the midst of a crisis, in the midst of some sort of catastrophic event, there is acute illness, acute suffering. And typically during those periods, you know, there are a lot of resources that is devoted by the healthcare system, by governments, by even non-governmental organizations. If you think about, you know, a tsunami that happens somewhere else in the world, there are a lot of resources there and there's a lot of public support to address those things. And when, you know, as the acute phase progresses and it becomes more of a subchronic or a chronic kind of issue, and as, you know, um, as, as an, you know, as a community or a, or, or a province tries to recover from the acute impact, oftentimes that's where the attention is no longer, um, you know, is, is no longer there as much. The resources may not be there as much. And any of the sort of local ability and local capacity has been exhausted in the acute response. And that is oftentimes when the curtain gets pulled back mm. on all of the vulnerabilities in the system. And we are definitely seeing that uh, currently this summer in the healthcare system. So, I mean, I'll, I'll ask you to uh, look into the crystal ball then, and that may be uh, something as a scientist, you're not entirely comfortable with as an idea, but um, you said it, summer's kind of the slow time at the hospitals. 
Um, mm. it, it hasn't been pretty slow this summer. Um, we have, uh, you know, cold medicine, you know, depleted at the drugstores. Um, you know, everyone's going to be going back to school. All the university residences are going to be full. Uh, that's going to, that's going to put a lot of pressure on a system that has strained and hasn't had that summer break. I mean, is it going to be worse by the time we get to October, November? You know, ultimately, <clears throat> the answer to that question comes down to leadership. Mm. Um, because there's no doubt about it. There, there will be things that will threaten to make the scenario more difficult. But there are a lot of other things there that can mitigate all of the, ch the challenges we potentially may face. So, for example, while you're absolutely right, the dormitories will be full, the schools will be resuming, you know, if there is a good, strong plan to keep students safe, if there is, you know, if, if there are good health promotion strategies that allow people to understand their risk for COVID, that educate people that any symptom, you know, you know, even minor respiratory symptoms can be COVID and to test early and isolate early, you know, those kinds of things can go a long way towards mitigating the impact of respiratory season and, and, and you know, and the fall. Similarly, um, you know, uh, the UK just approved a bivalent vaccine for COVID. That could have a tremendous impact in making future COVID waves this fall and through the winter significantly less, uh, significantly less dangerous. But all of that depends on a government that can step forward and lead, plan for a vaccination campaign, and then execute it in a way that allows everyone to get a vaccine swiftly and without significant um, significant impact to themselves. So, you know, if, if we have people from low socioeconomic communities that cannot get to vaccination center, that cannot afford to get to vaccination center, that cannot isolate if they have respiratory symptoms, but they don't have access to 10 paid sick days. Mm. In the absence of leadership like that, it could be a very bad fall and worse than this summer. And my job as an opposition MP, and certainly one who comes from a healthcare background, someone who comes from having been on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic for two and a half years. And by the way, I'll put in a little plug for the opioid epidemic, which nobody right. is talking about yeah. and which doesn't go in waves. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. You know, I see one of my fundamental roles as being to push the government not to forget these things, to demonstrate leadership, to give them ideas when they simply don't come up with any and hold their feet to the fire and make them accountable so that they will deliver on all of these things. Because ultimately, truthfully, I became a doctor because I want to help people. I'm a politician because I want to help people. And, you know, Minister Jones's success, Premier Ford's success, that government's success is my patient's success. And as a politician, my patients are 15 million people, and I want all of them to be healthy. Right. And uh, I, I'm not... I just so people who may have heard that rumbling, nobody's moving a, a chest of drawers at, uh, at Adil's house. That is thunder. And it was very well-timed, but um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> it's hardly your fault, but you know, speaking of capital L leadership, uh, we, we do have the AMO conference in Ottawa this week. Uh, Doug Ford did speak on, on Monday. He was very, I think, positive about the, the healthcare outlook and, I think this has been sort of a primary place of friction where we have healthcare workers uh, talking about struggles, uh, you know, announced today, St. Joseph's in, in Toronto is, you know, looking at, you know, maybe cutting some hours. Yeah. Um, 
you know, the, the, the rhetoric doesn't quite seem to match the, the reality on the ground. So, I mean, you know, hearing the premier talk and, and talking about all, all those concerns you just mentioned, I mean, um, what's the disconnect? <laughs> I mean, evidently, Premier Ford sees the province through rose-tinted glasses. Mm. But, you know, the experience of patients speaks for themselves. You know, if you live in a community like Perth or Red Lake, mm. and not even rural communities anymore, Orangeville, Ottawa, Kingston, all of these communities have had ER closures of some form or another. Um, it, uh, you know, I struggle to understand why it's so difficult to acknowledge that there are fractures in our, in, you know, in our COVID response, there are fractures in our healthcare system. Um, and, you know, I think hearing those, what I consider simply to be talking points, what you could, you know, what you referred to as rhetoric, I mean, there are words, and I think to the people of Ontario, to patients, they don't resonate because the patient experience of someone who's been waiting now for years for a knee replacement, someone who, you know, is waiting for a cancer surgery or a cancer screening test, and someone who has to wait, you know, you know, six or eight hours just to be seen for the first time by their emergency do doctor, if they're lucky enough to even have access to an emergency doctor, there is a massive disconnect there. And I think the people of Ontario know it. Mm -hmm. I, I do. And always trying to find solutions, though. I mean, you do have, you know, opposition critics like yourself. You have the, the frontline medical professionals. And then you have the Minister of Health, Minister Jones, um, who, you know, cornered by a bunch of reporters in Queen's Park saying like, well, isn't there a crisis in the hospital? And she can't seem to, to spit out the words like, yeah, there's a problem, even though, you know, you can flip through Twitter and or, you know, just watch the news and, and see the problem. So I guess how do you how do you break through the, those those rose colored glasses you're talking about is, is you know, I, I guess at what point does the crisis become so undeniable that you can't you can't paste over it with the, the, yeah. the happy talk? So, I mean, truthfully, I, I think we've already crossed that point. I mean, once we started, you know, even in even in January and February of this year, when we were in the Omicron wave, we were we were already seeing hospitals at risk of closing, paramedic services that couldn't that couldn't produce ambulances to respond to 911 calls. Right. And that was sort of in my mind, that was the canary in the coal mine. Once we entered, you know, June and we started seeing emergency departments threatening to close and then closing. And then it, in the beginning, it was a few, then, it, then it's ICUs, obstetrical services, wards of hospitals. And then we see major institutions like Toronto Western Hospital saying that, you know, being on the very, like, this is what we call a quaternary care hospital. It's where all the specialist hospitals send their patients to because they've got this, you know, the super subspecialist. When we see very well-resourced emergency departments and hospitals at the stage where, you know, they are, at, you know, at the point of having to close their services. I mean, we're, we're well past the point. Now, in terms of how do we actually, uh, how do we get the government to acknowledge that? I mean, you know, I, I have stood in press conference after press conference to uh, in an objective and empirical, and I believe fair way, articulate all of the problems in our healthcare system, all of the struggles that our patients are facing. 
and then offer solutions. And, you know, I haven't just gone to the media. I haven't, you know, I haven't tried. I worked very hard, actually, to not be oppositional for the sake of being oppositional. Right. My press conferences were preceded by multiple private attempts in emails, letters, even registered mail to try and offer my assistance, my expertise and my perspective. We're now at the stage where we're talking to the media. And, you know, I believe, you know, I believe that the government is feeling some heat um, and we're starting to see some action, but it's too little and it's too late. You know, just two weeks, roughly two weeks ago, we finally heard Minister Jones come out and say she's instructed you know, the College of Nurses of Ontario and the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario to accelerate the credentialing of foreign trained healthcare, healthcare workers. Well, we've been calling for this, you know, for ages, and they've been telling us they've been doing it for ages. Mm. And yet the fact that, that two weeks ago, they're finally reaching out to the colleges and saying, come up with a plan. Um, it just speaks to how unprepared this government has been. It seems like they're finally moving. But as I mentioned, it is clearly too little, too late. Too many nurses have left the profession. Too many healthcare workers are burnt out and demoralized. And there are too many patients waiting too long on wait lists that are, you know, that are unacceptable. And to, and to reiterate, too, you know, uh, who sort of trains the, the new incoming nurses and health staff, it's other nurses and health staff. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm going to magically make you the minister of health for, for a couple of minutes here and, and say like, if, if, you know, in a parallel universe where, you know, you're serving in a Stephen Del Duca government and you're the minister of health, you know, what are the actions you take right now? Yeah. So, I mean, number one, I would communicate effectively. That means listening to healthcare workers and listening to health stakeholders, which includes patients showing up every day, analyzing the situation on a daily basis and providing operational leadership. So for example, if I understand that there's going to be an ER closure in a community like Perth or Ottawa, coming forward and having a, a, a an in that moment human resource plan to make sure that there are adequate personnel or assets to ensure that the people in those communities have proper support that doesn't compromise their healthcare. And so, you know, operational leadership is one thing I would do from day one. Taking a step back, there's another perspective, which I consider to be strategic leadership. And those are the policies and the, the system-wide priorities I would take. And those would involve a number of things. Number one, I would come out with the health human resource strategy. This government does not believe in people. It believes in infrastructure. Mm. But beds don't care for people. People care for people. So we need to make sure that our nurses and healthcare workers, which includes PSWs, paramedics, respiratory therapists, social workers, mental health workers, are looked after. Repealing Bill 124 will go a long way towards articulating, rather communicating respect for healthcare workers. Making sure they have the resources they need to, su to succeed, such as uh, making sure they've got access to mental health supports and combating burnout. And, you know, um, if, uh, if I could be in this honored position today, that would be great. If I could have been in that honored position a year ago or two years ago, I would have been accelerating the credentialing of foreign trained healthcare workers from the very beginning, but I would be doubling down on that right now. That's just the health human resource strategy. Right. I could go on, you know, uh, more, <laughs> more support for community resources like long-term care, primary care, so that hospitals only have to do the things that only they can do. We would have a strong COVID-19 plan. We would have strong health promotion strategies. We'd make sure that all Ontario workers have 10 paid sick days. And then, you know, I could go on and on, but. Uh, 
but no, you raise a good point though. Like, it, it's not, it's not like we have one healthcare crisis. It's like we have two healthcare care crises where we we have to build a system that works better, but at the same time we're in the um, in a morass. We're in a crisis that requires immediate action, and th- you know those are two kind of separate plans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I kind of like to promote kind of individual action, community action. And I'm realizing not everybody's a health professional. Um, But I mean, is there things that, you know, me as a person in the community can do to sort of help alleviate the crisis, you know, independent of government action or inaction, such as it is, is there anything like we can do as community members to, to support our healthcare professionals? So, I mean, honestly, thank you so much for asking that. That is the, that is the question I act, well, the answer that I'm providing is I wish the answer that government would provide and would educate the public so that, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, every single one of us can, can, can play our role. So, you know, the first thing that I would say is, you know, what, you know, let's, let's understand our risk to COVID mm. and let's be clear that COVID does still exist. And that doesn't mean we can't go out and enjoy our lives, but it, it does mean that we have to have an understanding of the things that are, yeah, it, it helps have an understanding of things that are higher risk, especially as we go into the fall. So large public gatherings, you know, especially with people that you don't know, especially with people that you may or may not know, you know, are vaccinated or not. And understand that those are higher risk events and try and focus on smaller, lower risk events, you know, things with people that you know, perhaps, you know, who are more likely to be masked, more likely to be vaccinated. Um, you know, that would be one important thing that I would say. I would encourage everyone to go and get vaccinated. You know, there's been a lot of controversy about whether people should get a fourth dose or not, especially if, you know, if you're over 60, the evidence is very clear that a fourth dose is, is very valuable. Under 60, you know, um, it, it's an individual decision as Dr. Moore uh, reminded us a few weeks ago. But certainly, you know, I encourage everyone to not just have the full primary series, which for most people is two doses, but to get that third booster dose. And our booster, our booster levels across the province are uh, are, are too low right now. We're sitting somewhere between 50 and 60 percent, and yep. and it would be beneficial for it to be higher. Also, our vaccination rates in children, um, you know, could be a lot higher, especially as we get ready for school. Mm-hmm. And then I would say, let's all look out for each other. This is a very difficult time. You know, we have to look out for each other, support each other in terms of each, uh, our mental health, our health care workers as well. You know, it was uh, the government has not shown an appreciation for health care workers. But if you know a health care worker, be it a PSW, a nurse, a doctor, a respiratory therapist, let them know that we care about them, that we appreciate their services. It's not about, you know, I, I am an emergency physician. This isn't about patting myself on the back, but it's about reflecting on the intense struggle and the sacrifice that I've seen my colleagues make um, and just making, making sure that they know that, you know, that they are valued um, and that, you know, they are the backbone of our healthcare system because they are, but you know, all of us, um, you don't have to be a healthcare worker to save a life. Mm -hmm. If you have a minor symptom, you know, stay home, uh, get yourself tested that, you know, if you're a young, healthy individual, you may not, have a severe outcome from COVID. But if you do run into someone who's older, who's immunocompromised, that's a little bit behind on their vaccinations, you know, you could save someone's life by staying home and getting tested. So there are small things that all of us can do that are monumental in their impact. 
That's great. And um, I do have an eye on the time, but uh, I do want to ask you a, a kind of blatantly political question to wrap mm -hmm. up. You have uh, brought forward a bill to have the mandate letters uh, released. Yes. I'm sure you are aware that the there is still a court case heading to the Supreme Court about the last term's mandate letters. Yes. Um, how confident are you your bill will be a success? <laughs> so, you know, I'll tell you, Adam, it depends on what you measure as as success. Um, I know that there are 83 conservative members who are very likely going to vote against that. But um, we're not going to get a Supreme Court decision uh, until, first of all, they hear the case, which won't be until winter 2023. And then a judgment won't come, you know, probably for another six months after that. We've seen the danger of, uh, of you know, Ford's hidden agenda in, in, in the form of their privatization agenda that's only coming clear now. Um, and, you know, the bill signals to the Ford government that we're watching. I'm a rookie. I'm a rookie MPP. The Liberal Party does not have party status, but we're watching and we will use every single tool in our arsenal to hold the Ford government accountable. And, you know, I must admit, Adam, you're part of the solution as well. I really appreciate you asking about asking about the bill, because, you know, when the media hears about this, when they talk about it and the, the whole business about the mandate letters was started by the CBC. It was initiated by, you know, right. by journalists fighting for transparency, which is what I'm fighting for, too. And the more we talk about it, the more the Ford government has to contend that there is a real appetite for every single person in Ontario to be engaged in the political process and to understand what they're trying to do and to pull back the curtain on their agenda. And as long as we're creating dialogue, holding their feet to the fire, then this bill will be a, will be a success. That being said, I have a couple ideas in mind that's going to make it very difficult for them to vote no on this. <laughs> I love how you have been in Queen's Park for about two months and you're already, you know, leaving the interview with it to be continued at the at the end. But uh, thank you, sir. we appreciate that. So, Dr. Adil Shamji, we, we thank you for your time and uh, good luck with uh, the rest of the term and good luck on your COVID recovery, too. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me. All righty. That was Dr. Adil Shamji and uh, expect to hear more from him in the future. He is, I mean, the, the liberal bench is eight strong, so uh, he is going to get a lot of face time. But I mean, if, if there were like 50 people in the liberal bench, I think he'd probably get a lot of face time too. Cause he sounds like it. Yeah. 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 He's a, he's a, he's a young, he's a young blood. He's an up, upstart. He's a, uh, I, I've run out of superlatives. Okay. A fresh roll. A fresh roll. It's only our first. <laughs> it's only our first show back. Must be hungry, over. right? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is dinner time, so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's it for this edition of the show. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you enjoy having us back. We are going to have a very busy fall. Um, we're going to start trying to get some of the local council candidates onto the show to do micro interviews. So stay tuned for that and stay connected to us on our website, opensourcesguelph.com. We're on the Facebook at Open Sources Newswire and we're on Twitter at OS underscore Guelph. You can listen to the show again by downloading it from our website every Monday from the Guelph Politicast channel on Podbean or through your favorite podcast app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn and Spotify. You can find me personally on Adam at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram. And you can check out my news and politics site at GuelphPolitico.ca. Scotty Hertz on Facebook, Scotty Hertz on Twitter. And for all things CFRU, particularly the shows, including us, check out CFRU.ca slash shows for a complete schedule of what's going on on this fine station. If you're not listening to us already, you can start listening to us. 
by anyway. Yeah, it's um, one of those time travel <laughs> things, right? Go back and then go forward again. You've heard us twice. That's right. Stay tuned for more great programming here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. We shall return next Thursday at 5 p.m. for more open sources. And we will see you then.